0: Welcome to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Peggy Shepard.
1: If you help the most vulnerable, you're helping everyone.
0: Peggy Shepard is a pioneer of the environmental justice movement. For more than 30 years, she's been shining a light on the ways environmental issues and social justice issues intersect. Her journey into this work began in the 1980s with a battle over a sewage treatment plant which was polluting her neighborhood of West Harlem in New York City. She went on to co-found and lead We Act for Environmental Justice, a community organization with the mission of ensuring that the right to clean air, water, and soil extends to all people, no matter where they live, what color their skin is, or how much money is in their bank accounts. Peggy has helped to lead and train citizen groups working on a wide range of issues, including pesticides, climate change, indoor air quality, and more. She's also recognized as a national leader in building partnerships between citizens and scientists, working together to solve real-world environmental health problems. Many of the environmental protections she helped to fight for in her community have later been scaled up to the national level, benefiting people around the country and even around the world. Peggy has been honored with many awards, including the Heinz Award for the Environment and two honorary doctoral degrees. But she says she didn't plan to have such a public-facing leadership role. As a young girl growing up in Washington, D.C. and New Jersey, she was quite introverted, she says. And her goal was to become a writer and a magazine editor.
1: I think my love of writing began uh, reading magazines that my mother used to subscribe to at home. Um, she was always an avid reader, uh, especially um, of current events. And I remember current events was one of the, the favorite um, subjects I took in school. Uh, right then, Back then, it was the Mideast crisis, and I was totally compelled with what was going on. Um, my mother um, dabbled in politics uh, in New Jersey as well, so I always had that interest. And then when I got to high school, uh, I, I, remember, um, Gloria Steinem was a freelance writer and she was writing for glamor magazine and playboy magazine. And I followed her career and wanted to do that kind of writing for, for magazines that could really, um, it, you know, issues that could talk to, to women about, uh, what was going on in our lives. And uh, so my mission uh, after school was to become a magazine editor. And uh, so my first job out of school was um, at the Indianapolis News. Uh, I was the first black reporter there. and. Um, You're going to laugh, but I worked for the women's page. (laughs) Most people today would not know what that is. Yeah, describe (laughs) it. Describe the women's page. So uh, in average newspapers, there was a women's page that had uh, articles, of course, you had weddings and engagements, but then there were feature articles um, of concern to women. And so when I started with the Indianapolis News, um, they had just brought in a new women's editor from the Detroit Free Press, which was a major newspaper at that time. And she had been a strong editor there and she had been brought in to revitalize the women's pages. And so I met a friend of hers by socially who said, oh, you know, Barbara, her name was Barbara Veronic. I still remember. Um, she said she's looking for some younger people to really you know, uh, get this section started. And so I got an interview and all I had to show were a book of poems that I had been writing. Um, And so I brought my portfolio of poems and uh, interviewed and I got the job on the spot.
0: Wow, those must have been some good poems.
1: Um, You know, I was not an accomplished poet, (laughs) but uh, apparently it showed enough um, for her to hire me and take a chance. And it was really interesting because at the time, this was, um, the the early seventies and the black Panther party was having those breakfast programs. And, um, as long as I did some of that on my own time, she would run the stories. So on Saturday, I'd go to the black Panther breakfast program and do a, a piece and I'd bring a photographer along And the story would run on the women's pages i did stories on uh sex education which was quite controversial back then um especially in indiana um i did uh pieces on women migrants because again there were a lot of um uh, migrant farming uh, in indiana and so all of those articles actually ran on the women's pages i i remember um a particular uh, issue that I I uh, will never forget. Uh, there was a local uh, department store, you know, the main upscale uh, store in Indiana. It was called Ellis Ayers. And at lunchtime, they had a women's line for the restaurant, and they had a men's line. And so the women's line that had all of these professional women who worked and needed to get in and out for lunch was like around the block, and the men's line was very short. And so, you know, I was making a point about, um, you know, women's rights. And by the time I got back to my office, the newspaper, the store had called the managing editor and killed the story. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) These are sort of arcane things that that most of my young staff would not even understand today.
0: Yeah, but isn't that so great that issues can have moved enough in in your lifetime that it is like it's almost like what? Like that
1: happened? Like All of this is being done on a typewriter.
0: Yeah, that's that's truly amazing. <laughs> so, you eventually moved to New York and you're having a pretty interesting career in publishing but then in the mid 80s, you started to veer off into another direction. So can you connect those dots for us? How did you get from writing and publishing in, into politics and environmental justice work?
1: Yeah, so I kind of made the transition from from a publishing career because um, I, I finally came to New York where I was working for Red Book and Essence and Black Enterprise Magazines and Time, Inc. And um Began to work in political campaigns, and so Mm -hmm. the first campaign was the Jesse first Jesse Jackson campaign for president, which was a very exciting time and it gave me a chance to um, work with communities all over New York City, but in doing that, I had the opportunity to get a sense of advocacy in different neighborhoods. And I really began to see how their advocacy translated into community benefits. Mm -hmm. And so after that campaign, um, the campaign manager, Bill Lynch, who was a a major uh, political operative in New York City, um, said, do you want to be behind the scenes or do you want to be out front with your own ideas? And that really gave me something to think about. You know, at the time, I was a fairly introverted, quiet person, and I thought about, my God, I'll have to give speeches and, you know, have to do all of this public-facing work, and I decided um, to go ahead and take him up on that. He said, "Um, why don't you run for Democratic District Leader in West Harlem, which is where I was living, and the first issue that the community brought to us was a sewage treatment plant that was beginning to operate and was making people sick.
0: What, what were you hearing? What were people telling you?
1: They said, you know, there's a sewage treatment plant in the Hudson River right across the street from Riverside Drive, and it's spewing emissions and odors that um, the odors were just incredible all over the community. And then, of mm-hmm. course, we realized that there were air toxics that were really exacerbating asthma and making people sick. And so Mm -hmm. as a result, we began a six year uh, campaign working to hold the city accountable for the operations of this plant. Now, mind you, I did not have an environmental background. I had a journalism background, Um, but I guess it taught me to ask the right questions. And um, so we began to hold uh, accountability monthly meetings with the mayor, back then it was Mayor Koch, who was not very friendly to uptown communities of color. And uh, we began to um, hold those meetings. And when David Dinkins became the first, um, uh, first he became borough president, and then the first black mayor of New York City, he said, there's an issue here, and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And so he appointed a real environmentalist to the Department of Environmental Protection. And we began to work on the issue uh, of the emissions. Um, We found out that former Mayor Koch had not been honest in saying that odor control equipment was there and all of the latest um, uh, equipment was there, was in fact not there. Mm. We began working with the city, but then we reached out to the Natural Resources Defense Council in our DC, and they began to come to our meetings and realized that we needed to file a lawsuit against the city to ensure that this plant would be fixed. Now, it couldn't be shut down because at that time, if you flush the toilet on the west side of Manhattan, it all went into the Hudson River. So the federal government had come in and mandated uh, a sewage transfer treatment plant to be built to clean up uh, the affluent into the river.
0: Well, I, I'm sorry, I just have to stop you for a second. So you're saying that people went to the bathroom, flushed their toilets, and that went in directly into the river? hmm Wow. Okay.
1: So this plant um, was a huge investment. And so we had the unintended consequence. You know, we were cleaning up the river um, because at, at that point, it was not swimmable. The fish, the ecosystem was dying. Um, so you've got this plant to clean up the river, but now what's happening is that it's emitting air toxins. Cleaning up the river, but dirtying up the neighborhood. And it was coming online just as I became the district leader. Mm-hmm. We decided that we had to sue because David Dinkins would not always be in an office. Mm-hmm. And so we needed a mandate on how this plant would be operated. And so we filed a public nuisance suit, basically saying that residents did not have the, the use of their property because they had to keep their windows closed and you know it was a community nuisance. And so on the last day of the Dinkins administration, the administration um, settled our lawsuit for $1.1 million uh, environmental benefit. Never anticipated that. Um, and also made um, my organization, WE Act, and the NRDC um, monitors of a five year agreement to fix the plant and $55 million committed to fix what was a brand new plant.
0: So the plant, when it was installed, had these issues. It wasn't like it, w- it had been installed 20 years before and it, it was like
1: installed in a way that was going to pollute the neighborhood. That's right. There was no odor equipment, which is supposed to happen. And um, they, they had it had a design of arches that were open. So you could even look through the arches and see the settling tanks of sewage. So those Arches were covered, uh, you know, uh, were uh, cemented in and uh, there were a number of um, odor control uh, equipment that was installed in in the plant. And so after five years, that was done. And, um, you know, sewage treatment plants, uh, you know, they smell from time to time, um, but it's been a better neighbor since. That was our first major organizing campaign. And I think that six year organizing campaign really, um, helped the community begin to understand environmental issues. um, because we all had to learn, we were learning together. We would bring air pollution, uh, experts. We started a partnership with the Columbia school of public health. So we had all of these scientists coming and talking to us. And so we were learning, um, once that plant was, um, was fixed and retrofitted, we had a cadre of community residents who really understood these issues. You know, what I realized is that once you understand or see an issue like that, you begin to see all the others. Uh You begin to say, well, gee, it looks like we have one third of all the diesel buses in New York City in uptown neighborhoods. And and for people that are not familiar
0: with New York, when you say uptown, explain what that means and, and what
1: how it overlays with, with racial dynamics in the city. So of course, you know, most people know Manhattan, um, you know, Times Square and Broadway and Midtown, where all the offices are. Well, once you get above the Upper West Side, which is a residential community, um, and you get up into the Columbia University area, Just above that at 125th Street is Harlem.
0: So when you say that a third of the bus depots in the city are uptown, that means that they were in primarily Black neighborhoods, yes?
1: Black and Latino neighborhoods, yes. So uptown neighborhoods above 96 are primarily all African American and Latino. Of course, there's gentrification. And so there, you know, there is certainly a, a white population as well. Um, but it's primarily African-American and Latino.
0: So to get back to the point of what you were trying to say is that if you were starting to make these connections, like, oh, wait a minute, why are all the bus depots uh, up here? And, and what does it mean to have
1: a bus depot in your neighborhood? Well, at that time, they were using the worst diesel fuel. And we know today through a variety of research that diesel fumes, Um, are pollutants. They're air toxins, that they're made up of a number of of pollutants that can exacerbate uh, asthma and heart disease. Within a a diesel um, emission, you have very fine particles that are very easily breathed into your lungs, but very hard to expel. So that kind of diesel soot um, really can exacerbate asthma. So as we were understanding that, we decided to reach out to the Columbia School of Public Health to understand whether they were seeing more um, asthma uh, hospitalizations or emergency room visits from our zip code. So Mm -hmm. we were trying to to make the link between environmental exposure and health outcomes. And um, these studies take a while. So two years after making that request, we get a very excited call from the uh, head of pulmonary medicine at Harlem Hospital, who was also a professor at uh, Columbia, to say that the study was showing that the incidence of asthma in Harlem was three times that of any other community in New York City.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And so that was amazing. It, It kind of confirmed what we, you know, were thinking could be possible. But there we have the data. And so that really armed us um, with what we call the evidence base to develop our campaigns. And so we began to work with Columbia, developing research on air quality, monitoring uh, the air quality at different intersections, monitoring air quality near schools. And some of that data was used by the EPA to develop the fine particulate standard. The, the standard that exists for the whole country. Yes. And, and so I, I, I wanna make the point that local community issues um, can affect the, when you address those issues, you address the whole city or the whole state or the whole country. You can't do just uh, a legislation for my neighborhood. Um, so if you ha- help the most vulnerable, You're helping everyone.
0: We'll have more with Peggy Shepard after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin and I'm talking with Peggy Shepard, one of the founders of the environmental justice movement in the United States. The organization that Peggy co-founded and leads, We Act for Environmental Justice, has successfully advocated for notifications of pesticide use, removal of harmful chemicals from baby bottles and pacifiers, and, as Peggy was describing before the break, reduction of pollution from the bus depots in New York City, many of which are located in predominantly Black and Latino neighborhoods.
1: We took that on for 18 years. (laughs) And I'd say one of our uh, victories also was uh, when the city decided to, or the transit authority decided to renovate an old depot, tear it down and rebuild, we developed a community task force that worked with the transit authority for six years to build the first leads rated depot. And lead stands for leadership in energy and environmental design. So it means that it was, you know, very, very green. And we were able to, and in- to insist that every bus be inside that depot and that the vents that that vent the diesel out into the community had uh, screens that could screen out those fine particles. Because our theory of change is really, if you engage the most affected residents uh, in environmental decision-making, that that will improve public policy.
0: One thing that that stands out to me in addition to what you're saying about how thinking and working in, in, on very specific local issues can translate into large national policy is also that the persistence, that these are not battles that you can go out in the street, rally around for a couple of weeks, and then, then we're done. I mean, you're talking... I mean, the shortest campaign that you've mentioned here was six years. So I, I'm curious about that as you're, uh, I know you've been, you know, a real leader in, in bringing up other people in this work. And is that something that you have learned how to educate people on how to, how to do this in a marathon style and, and not the sprint?
1: Yeah, um, we try to let people know that a lot of environmental infrastructure um, costs multi millions, if not billions of dollars. And so um, you really have to understand that and know that everything can't be shut down, that some things you simply have to work to have them retrofitted or enforced or to ensure compliance uh, by the polluter. Hmm. So a lot of this work is very nuanced. It can take having the right set of circumstances in the country, uh, in the public consciousness, to move certain uh issues forward i want to talk about
0: race and how that interfaces with everything here um my understanding is if if you're a white person in america you are far less likely to live next to a sewage treatment plant a landfill an incinerator than if you're a person of color and um I, I'm wondering, you know, what your understanding is of why that is the case, and what effects does that have on on populations and on the the possibilities for
1: change? I think today, um, with the resurgence of of uh, a racial dialogue, we now understand that s- systemic racism is on a continuum. It's about, segregated education and and poor schools in certain neighborhoods. It's about housing segregation and how the GI Bill and government policies help to create that segregation. Um, It's about communities and disinvestment in certain communities. It's about zoning and how um, communities of color have been steered toward the areas that have the most pollution or are in manufacturing zones zones that are are zoned for industrial use, Um, a lot of times people will say, well, the depot was there before the community was there. And sometimes, yes, that is true. And then we say, but yes, now that the community is here, you need to think differently about how you're using that land.
0: Well, and and just going back to this idea that like, well, the depot was there before the people. And so, you know, I, I hear people making those kinds of arguments on in all kinds of things. Um, and I and I feel like what gets missed so often with that question is the deeper question of well, well, why? Why does this group of people feel like this is their best option? Why? you know, why aren't more white and affluent people moving in here? You know, what choices do they have that maybe a Native American community or Latino community, Black community doesn't have? And and do you feel like that there's a way uh, to to push the dialogue into that level where we can, it's not just so simple of like, oh, I guess they want to live in, an, in a polluted area. I mean, nobody wants to live in a polluted area.
1: You know, if we just talk about Um, Manhattan, and I think it would be similar in other um, cities around the country. Um, Black people used to live in lower Manhattan down in the financial district. They kept getting pushed out. They used to have a settlement in Central Park. They were pushed out to make way for uh, a renewed Central Park. And so they kept getting pushed to other areas. Then you have realtors who simply won't show a black family, a house in a white community. And so what happens is that the only place you're steered to by realtors um, is a community of color or a changing community. There are also communities that have uh, codicils that says you cannot sell this property to a person of color or a black person. Uh, And those still exist in this country. Oh my, I thought, isn't that illegal? Um, it's illegal if it's challenged. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, it take somebody purposely challenging that. And so, yes, yeah, some of that still exists. Uh, I'm sure it's against the law, but again, it has to be challenged. And I think, you know, we know today, you know, you see it in the newspapers and the media where a white person goes to, for an apartment and they're told the apartment's there. The black person goes, they have the same credit and they're told the apartment's gone. I mean, it still happens today. Mm -hmm. There are systemic ways that Black families have been uh, steered towards certain communities because those are the only places that would rent to them. And so when you have segregation, you then have have a system where, well, where are we going to put the pollution? Where are we going to put the sewage plant or the bus depot or the waste transfer station or an industrial facility. It's going to be where uh, the la- land is cheaper. Why is the land cheaper? Because people of color are there.
0: And also where people for in, in so many ways um, have been disempowered, so it's harder to fight back. I mean, the, the, the example with the sewage treatment plan, as I understand it, it was supposed to be sited
1: in a white community first, right? It was supposed to be sited down in the Upper West Side. Uh, developers got together and went to the City Planning Commission and got them to to move it further uptown. Um, And and the interesting thing is that our water system in New York works, um, the pipes work by gravity, and uptown um, is actually the highest, at the highest geographical point in Manhattan. So they're pushing the waste uphill.
0: Exactly. Wow. I mean, the 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 symbolism and the reality come come together in a pretty disturbing way. It's literally, and excuse my language, but like, let's put the shit on the black people. Like, just like we're gonna just we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to have to look at it, see it, smell it. So we're gonna put it out here where people can't are are less likely to have the resources to fight back effectively. Um, and I, I, I feel like that kind of gets into something I wanted to ask you about, which it, it feels to me that there's this deeper thing going on around the country where um, where communities that have more power um, just seem to kind of have an immature attitude that they don't ever have to look at or deal with their their waste or with the the downside of the of their consumerism you know the landfills or whatever and that somebody else can always somebody else will always take care of that almost like oh my maid will deal with this you know and i'll i'll i don't have to be the one to actually do that that dirty work and i i wonder if if there's a a way that you see yourself as being in charge of like trying to make america grow up to be like you actually do have to clean up your own messes no matter how much power
1: you have. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, in the environmental justice movement, we feel that we should be addressing solutions so that no community has to bear the brunt. However, we are willing to take our fair share, but not the lion's share.
0: It, it leads me to something I wanted to ask you about the way that we think about environmental issues. I feel like that a lot of people are walking around with the idea social justice issues are in one box in their mind and environmental issues are in another
1: box. Uh, What's wrong with that paradigm? What's wrong with that paradigm is that systemic racism, again, cuts across all issues and all sectors, um, whether it's housing, education, environment, all of those issues and as we know your zip code can almost predict your health outcomes and you know that's a startling uh thing to understand why is that possible well generally because of segregation um you've got certain people in certain zip codes and and we can talk about just the life expectancy between someone on 125th street and somebody on 94th street which is a different zip code the life expectancy can be at least 10 years difference because of the exposure because environmental exposure contributes to health disparities it is not the whole picture i I, you know i want to clarify that but it is a contributor it's a social determinant of health and we also understand that health disparities um also exist because of stress stress um is a significant modulator of disease. So if you have a cancer and you you have additional stress, um, that could make that cancer uh, more serious. Uh, and the stress of racism is an everyday stress.
0: Yeah. What kind of pushback have you gotten when you try to make people see and understand these kinds of connections who have not thought about that before or are resistant to thinking about it? What what kind of arguments do you hear back? And what, what do you
1: say? Well, until the past month, there's been no real conversation about race. Um, when I, you know, in the past, when I've talked to college students, um, say years ago, I would make the case about environmental racism and they would say, oh no, isn't it really about income? And I would say, no, it is not really about income because of segregation A lot of high-income Black people live in the same community as low-income Black people. There really hasn't been much discussion about race. People, you know, if we talk to green groups, for instance, you know, they're concerned about improving the air quality nationally. They're concerned that the National Air Quality Index um, continues to show improvement. They are not concerned that the air quality on my block is bad they're not concerned that the air quality across from a school in my neighborhood is bad uh in many ways we are the original community-based environmentalists and Mm -hmm. just to give you an interesting example we at one point had a dry cleaner project where we were working on the issue of 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 which is highly uh toxic um and when we started getting a little uh, media about it, guess where we were getting calls from the Upper East Side. Affluent white communities, because guess what? They have more dry cleaners. Uh, and yeah. in New York, dry cleaners are located on the ground floor of apartment buildings. The perk was permeating the the ceiling of the dry cleaner into the the floor of the apartments above. So we actually had women testing for PERC in their breast milk. So they were calling us about that issue. They couldn't call NRDC or the big green groups because they don't work at that level, at a local level like that. So I think letting people understand the studies that continue to be clarified year after year that the first indicator of where a toxic waste site is, is a community of color, and secondarily, a low-income community.
0: And it's also climate change. I mean, it, it, it's so clear that the the, the real-world effects of climate change, you know, right now, are already affecting communities of color, low-income communities, low-income countries, more than, than wealthier and whiter places and people. And I wonder, you know, what you have learned from your work so far that could be translated into that movement to help make those connections in the, in the climate discussion as well. When
1: we're thinking about climate policy, we really have to think about um, how we support people who have to migrate from their homes because of extreme weather. Um, We see in New Orleans where The lowest income communities were in the lowest lying areas of the city and were totally wiped out in Katrina in a way that created total civil disruption. So you had hundreds and thousands of people who literally had to become a migrant, a climate migrant move to another state. And guess what? Did not have the right of return because. If they tried to return their housing was not rebuilt, those who lived in public housing, all the public housing was torn down, you know, to, to a lot of people, climate change is about, you know, carbon reduction and that's it. And I'm thinking, well, to reduce carbon, all of these other things have to happen. We have to transition people out of certain jobs. That's an equity issue. Um, certain people in certain geographies are going to be more impacted, that's an equity issue. So the the concept that climate is simply a you know our messaging that it's really about we gotta reduce this carbon this amount by twenty fifty and that's it. That mm-hmm. is not it. Yeah. It affects it, the whole continuum of our lives and our future generations.
0: So I'm imagining that there are some people who are hearing this who are inspired by what you're saying and I imagine people thinking, okay, what can I do in my community? Um, From your perspective, what's the best possible next step for that person after they hear this and hear you who wants to do something? What would you hope that person might do either in terms of personal reflection or taking part in something in in their community?
1: I think they need to be advocates when they can and where they can. Um, They need to think about uh, the diversity of perspective. If they're at a meeting about a particular issue, ensure that you've got uh, people of color there who may have a different lived experience who can bring valuable expertise to the discussion that you're having. Diversity of experience and perspective is very, very important when we're developing solutions. That's one thing I, I would certainly say. And begin to have these conversations. Are, are you feeling hopeful? I am feeling hopeful. I think to be an advocate, you have to be an optimist. Um, because you know that these things take years and take changing hearts and minds. Uh, and also take a political window of opportunity. Well,
0: thank you again, Peggy Shepard, for, for your work and for your time, your thoughts today. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. This episode of Threshold Conversations was funded by the Park Foundation, Montana Public Radio, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. We're also funded by contributions from our listeners. Join our community at thresholdpodcast.org donate. If you're a fan of Threshold, I want to tell you about another podcast that'll take you on adventures all over the planet, The Wild with Chris Morgan. Chris is a wildlife researcher and an award-winning TV host and filmmaker. The Wild takes listeners across the Pacific Northwest and around the world to explore wildlife, their ecosystems, and the colorful human characters that know these places and species best. You get to immerse yourself in the wild and discover the surprising connections we share with wildlife, as well as gaining a better understanding of the world we share. Listen to The Wild with Chris Morgan wherever you get your podcasts. The Threshold team includes Eva Kalea, Nick Mott, Casey Simpson, Angela Swatek, and Talia Farnsworth, with help from Caroline Kurtz, Dan Careno, Hannah Carey, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, and Matt Herlihy. Our music is by Travis Yost.